Tonight we're going to uh, be back in Psalm, but we're going to go to Psalm 68. Uh, we're going to skip Psalm 67, um, just simply for a few reasons. I uh, tried to get it in with Psalm 66 because it's kind of together, uh, but it's basically talking about the same thing when it comes to praising God. Uh, so I felt like uh, we might need to go on to Psalm 68. Now this psalm is, is a little bit difficult one. Uh, most commentators believe that this psalm is connected with uh, the coming of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Uh, remember in 2 Samuel 6, you had the whole episode with uh, Uzzah. Uzzah touching the Ark because David was carrying it on a cart. Uh, and God striking him dead. And then David getting upset uh, with God and keep it there, uh, keeping the Ark there for about three months at uh, Owen Edom's house. Uh, then a blessing came upon him. Then David takes it and goes into uh, Jerusalem with singing and dancing and praising of God and bringing it to its, its as it were, its resting place there. Almost, uh, this psalm is almost a, a uh, kind of all the events from Exodus on, uh, especially coming from Mount Sinai uh, on uh, with the ark, about the ark going before the people, all the battles that they had. And kind of uh, bringing it, as it were, full circle to where God had uh, 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 promised them. Uh, and that's kind of what this psalm is dealing with. But uh, when it comes to this psalm, uh, most commentators have trouble with the uh, arrangement of it. Uh, they have trouble with uh, uh, some of the translations. Um, uh, Adam Clark wrote this, I know not how to undertake a comment on this psalm. It is the most difficult in the whole Psalter. And um, it is kind of difficult. It really depends on how you look at it, I guess. Uh, but this psalm, if you break it down, take it bits and pieces, you have praising God, you have the events that took place with God, you have God overcoming the enemies, the battles. And David just, to me, recounting these things. And, and showing the confidence that we ought to have in God. And that's how I'm going to approach uh, this psalm this evening. Uh, let's look at verses uh, maybe 1 through 3 or 4. We're going to talk about God's triumphs over His enemies here. He says, Let God arise. Let His enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate Him flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God, but let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Now here you have uh, on this phrasing of let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Here you have David, I think, going back to Moses as the uh, phrase that Moses would say as he would uh, uh, they would present the ark and the ark would go before them uh, when they go into battle or when they're traveling and then also coming to rest. If you go to Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, it says, notice it says, So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So you hear, have David here 
uh, kind of going back to the phrase of Moses, it'd be kind of like a leader, you know, David being the leader here, it's like a leader today. If a president was to start um, a speech and he was to say four score and seven years ago, what would you think? Abraham Lincoln. Would that get their attention? Would that call to mind what somebody else said? You know, I think that's what David is doing here. David is, uh, uh, you know, phrasing Moses. He's, he, he, he looks at how the... Con Can you imagine... I, I, I got to thinking about this as I was studying this. Can you imagine? You know, we always talk about God going before us, God being with us, God protecting us. You know, we, we say that a lot as a Christians, but can you imagine what they saw and how they truly felt when, when the ark would go before them? And, you know, especially uh, when you see even God going before them, even at the Exodus uh, from Egypt, of uh, you know, the cloud and the fire. Um, and then you have them coming from Mount Sinai as they got the law. And as they're going, and when they're going into battle, the confidence they must have had uh, when the ark of the Lord went before they did. You know, it had to be, uh, they already had to know victory was there before they ever fought the battle, didn't they? Now they learned a great lesson at Ai. Remember when they went without it and thought that they could conquer it because it wasn't very big and see they got the... You know, they got whooped and had to come back with their tails between their legs and uh, because God didn't go before them. But here you've got David. Notice how he says this. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away. He said this is how powerful God is and this is how uh, inadequate man is to go up against him. It's like smoke. It's like God going through just smoke. It's like a vapor. He, it's nothing to him. When, when God goes before, that battle is nothing to him. He said it's like wax melting before fire. You think about wax. You know, wax is, is kind of a hard substance, but when it meets with fire, what happens to it? It just melts, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't withstand it. And that's kind of how the enemies are. They're halting, they're big talkers, and they, they stand firm until they actually go against God, and then they realize they're not any match for him. So that's what David is saying. He's, you know, he's, he's going back to this phrase from Moses. Let God arise. And when God arises and going before us, he said the enemies are going to scatter. But notice what he says about it. He says, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God, but the righteous be glad. So the exact opposite of the righteous, those that are following God, those that God's going before, they can be glad for a number of reasons. Not just because that God goes before them, that they're on the presence of God, but God is destroying the enemy. He says, you can be glad in this. You can rejoice exceedingly in this because your enemies are going to be uh, uh, just like smoke and, and wax up against God. You don't have to worry. I, I can almost picture this, you know, the army going before God. Now, they had to do their part. It's just like uh, when they took Jericho. You remember, God told uh, Joshua, into your hands I give you this city. But they still had to do what God said to do for the city to come down. So the city was already coming down. The walls were coming down. God assured them of that, but they had to do God's part. And this was the same thing. But as long as they were following God, as long as they were doing what God said to do, and he was going before them, the enemies were no match for them. Can you imagine the great victories? And we can have that same attitude uh, here. You know, the Bible tells us if God is for us, what? 
who can be against us. We can have that same mindset of whatever task we have to face, we can face it. You know, I don't know how many times throughout, I guess, my preaching time. Well, actually, before that, I was in several business meetings and, and congregation. I don't know how many times, especially smaller ones, to where, you know, oh, uh, we, we need to do this, or, or this person, these, this situation over here needs help, or, or, or we need something's brought up about some work to do. And a lot of times the answer is, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. Why do you think the reason, the most common reason is for saying no to something? Well, I think that's the main reason they don't want to do it. I guess I should ask what excuse do they use then? But that's a good answer, Jerry. That's, that's actually the main one. What do you think it is? Don't have the money, don't have the manpower, don't have the ability. You know, mostly it's money and manpower. But there's a lot of things that we can accomplish, and it doesn't take a lot of money. You know, it, all it takes is a little elbow grease and a little, you know, just a little bit of, of sweat on the brow. But most importantly, is confidence in God. You know, if an opportunity is presented, you know, God's going to find a way. But a lot of times we diminish that just because we try to rely on our own abilities. Here, David is talking about when God goes before you, the enemies are nothing. We don't have to fear anything. You know, when we think about how our country's going and, and maybe the persecution that's coming or we think about those things, you know, what's, what's to fear? When, when God goes before us and we're following him, nothing can stop that. Nothing's going to diminish his, his work when it comes to the things that he does. And I think that's the confidence that, that David is showing here. But again, it shows the contrast from the enemy to those who follow God. Those who follow God can be glad. Those who follow God can rejoice. The enemy needs to, to beware. They're the ones that's going to perish at the presence of God. And I think that within itself, uh, you know, should be enough. Uh, I was talking to someone about obeying the gospel. And as, as we were discussing it, uh, you know, their, uh, one of the comments was, well, you know, I don't fear death. You know, maybe I should, but, but I don't fear death. And, and one of my comments to him was, well, I don't think you should fear death. If I wasn't serving God, I'd fear what comes after that. You know, what comes after that is where the problem's going to be. We're all going to face death. You know, and, and, and part of that, there is some fear to that. But what they were saying was basically, I, I'm not obeying because part of the reason you obey is because you have fear. I said, well, fear's part of it, but it's not the main motivation for it. But I would fear what comes after death. Um, but as a servant of God, we don't have to fear that. We don't have to fear what's in front of us now, and we don't have to fear what's coming. We can be glad and, and have exceeding uh, joy. Um, now, when he talks about standing, again, when he talks about uh, the, the presence of the enemies can't stand against it, this is kind of in contrast with what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. You know, in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, why does he say to do that? That we'll be able to do what? Yeah, withstand against the devil. And that's what he's talking about Christians being able to do. If we put on that whole armor of God, we can withstand whatever comes. We can stand up against. And I think what the psalmist here, in contrast to that, is saying to the enemies, you can't do that. 
You don't have the tools necessary. You don't have the armor necessary. You don't have the ability to stand. But God has given his people the ability to stand. We've got the things that we need to protect us, and we can have joy, and we can be exceedingly glad when it comes to that. Uh, look, starting here, verse 4 now. Uh, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation? God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound in prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in dry land. So he says here, sing to God, sing praises to his name. I think here again, it's a generalization of singing to God and praising him, but I think it gets more specific of why we sing and why we praise him. It says praise his name. And there's a lot in his name. His name defines his character. His name is defining who he is. Uh, and he says, he, he who rides on the clouds. Um, now, there could be a lot of, I guess, translation for this. You know, uh, it's that God goes before, he's over all the earth. Or by the fact of, you know, when you've got all of Israel going and the ark's before them, you just figure this big marching uh, uh, bunch of people in the cloud that arises, but God's at the top of it. You know, God, God is overseeing it. God is the one that you see. You don't know what's coming in that dust cloud, but you see what's riding that cloud and what goes before it is God. Now, he says something here that, that I'll be honest, that, that I kind of struggled trying to figure out why. But he says, he who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Now, Yah is a, um, only way I can describe it is a, a concentrated or abbreviated version of Jehovah or uh, Yahweh. Uh, but it's not an abbreviation to the fact of, uh, it diminishes in any way. It's actually more of a, a concentrated, distinguished powerful part but it's really talking about the one who is self-existing the one who is you know he says i am who i am he's the beginning and the end he's he's all of this rolled in and what david is saying is when when this when this being comes that is just so great that he's self-existing there's no before or, or after he he is from the beginning to the end there's no stopping someone like there's no going up against someone like that and he said, he's the one that is, when, when you see him, there should be fear come upon the enemies. You know, uh, did, did the name of, of God and, and the nation of Israel at that time of what God was building, did that reputation precede them before they went to places? Did people fear them before they ever got there? You know, I can think of several instances where they talked about how, you know, we've heard of what God has done. Remember, I guess it uh, was Nineveh, one of them, that talked about how they've heard that when Jonah, you know, preached that message when she did. They'd heard of what God can do, you know. Um, what, the Rahab? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it was actually, if I if I remember one that I read, maybe in Clark, that said this this reference to one who rides on the clouds is a reference to Baal, because the Canaanites actually talked about Baal riding, being on the clouds, and then David here making reference. No, there's only one that does that, uh, and that very well could be it uh, going up against that. You know, you think about. Uh, even the, the plagues that come upon Egypt, we just think about the plagues that's coming, but each one of them was a judgment on the gods in which they served, uh, of showing that God is superior to any other god. And so what, what separated uh, uh, God's people then and those that followed him from the Exodus home was the one true God. You know, this is the God, and it's, it's really his, his name is just un. Uh, you can't communicate his name, he's so great. And this is the name that they have for him. Um, you know, as Paul even said uh, there in Acts 17, you know, he, he, he sees the inscription to the unknown God. He said, that's the one, because there's only one. All these others don't matter. This one that you say is the unknown God because they didn't want to leave someone out, that's the one that you left out, and that's the one I'm proclaiming to you. So that's what David is, I believe, is talking about here. Not only the, this, this great, powerful being, but there's only one. And that's the one that they serve. And that's the one that's going to destroy the enemies. That's the one that you have to get behind and follow. But as he goes on here, he talks about him being like this military leader. That's how he's been describing him. But then notice how he changes, changes tunes here. He says... Um, uh, he says, rejoice before him, a father of the fatherless, a defender of, will, uh, of widows. He, he's not only this great military leader, but he's a protector. He, he becomes what I need him to be, doesn't he? he he's a father when I don't have one. He's, uh, he, he, he's my protector when I don't have one. He's my defender when I don't have one. He's exactly what I need when I need him. And that, that brings, that puts him different than, than any king or ruler. Yeah, there may be great military leaders, but there's not one as great as him and even as great a military leader as, as, as ruthless in the right world, as powerful as he is, yet here's what he is too. He's a father to the fatherless. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's a helper to them. He gives... Uh, he gives families to the solitary. So someone that's lonely, someone that's uh, by themselves, he provides a family for them. And have you ever thought about that? You know, we think about the importance of the church and we think about us together as Christians as the body of Christ. Have you ever thought of us of being that family to someone who doesn't have a family? Have we ever thought of it in terms of that? That's why fellowship and that's why togetherness and that's why brotherly love and that's why this concept of, uh, of family is so important because everyone that becomes a part of that should feel that, shouldn't they? And we really have to look at ourselves and see if that's truly who we are. Do we have our own little families within this family? And we've got, okay, there's the family of God, yeah, but this part of the family's over here and this part of the family's over here. We're all part of the family we sing we're part of the family god's family we sing that that, that means we're one we're, we're unity that's why jesus prayed in john 17 so earnestly that we all be one as he and the father are one he says here this is what god does god give uh god sets the solitary in families 
So does that tell me that I have a responsibility? If I'm part of God's family and God is going to provide a, a family for someone who doesn't have a family, then I've got a part in that, don't I? I've got a part so that person doesn't feel alone. So they don't feel abandoned. So they know, again, God becomes a protector. God becomes a provider. God becomes a defender to all those in need. He becomes what he needs to be for that individual for the needs that they have at a time. Do we each need God in different ways? Do we need him to provide for us in different ways, defend us in different ways? There's different defenses that he would have for me because I may be faced something different than you're faced at a particular time, but, but we serve the same God. So that, there's where he's uh, that self-efficient, that beginning and end. He's everything that he needs to be. He's who created this, this world. You don't think he knows how to take care of it? And become what he needs to be the time he did? Why did he become flesh and dwell among us, as John 1 and 14 said? Why did he do that? Why did that word become flesh? Yeah, we didn't have any other hope. That's what he needed to do for us. There was no other way. There, there had to be that. That's how he set it up. So he becomes what he needs to become. But David here is, I believe, switching gears from this powerful military leader to this compassionate, providing uh, God, being what he needs to be for those uh, that need him. And that's what James said. What did James say was pure and undefiled religion? Remember? Yeah, in their time of need. Why is that so important? I, I, you know, I thought about that a lot. I thought, okay, we, we do things for orphans and widows. We, we do those types of things. But I think it goes beyond just saying you do something for them. I think it goes to our mindset that if, if we're going to truly be what God wants us to be, we've got to have a compassionate, loving mindset for the needy. You know, that's who Jesus came to, wasn't it? He came to the poor. He came to the outcast. He came to those that need. Came to those that were sick. That's who he came to. So when he tells us, when James says pure and undefiled religion, in other words, the the, the characteristics of who we are is toward those kinds of individuals. And the greatest sickness we can have is be sick and sin, isn't it? That's who he come for. Uh, but many of the religious leaders of the time, many of the the prominent ones at that time didn't see it that way. I think that's why he, he battled uh, so much against them that they had. Um, because they seen themselves as superior and he seen himself as a protector. And that's what I think David is uh, describing here. Any thoughts about this before we move on? Notice here, he, uh, let's go to, I think we're on verse 7. Go to verse 7. Through about 10. The mighty presence of God uh, with Israel here in the wilderness. Notice what it says. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Salah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O oh God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you conformed, uh, confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. 
You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. Now he says several things here. He says, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. When we think of the people of Israel, children of Israel in the wilderness, what do we think of? Wandering, the wilderness wandering. You know, it's almost like we think, okay, they're going to camp over here a couple nights and they're going to wander over here and they're going to camp here. They're just lost. Were they lost in the wilderness? It talks about here when they're marching through the wilderness. Was God guiding them? They weren't lost and wandering around. God was taking them where he wanted to take them. And here I, I think it was just interesting how he described when you marched through the wilderness. He had a purpose. God doesn't aimlessly do anything. He says when you marched, when you God, when you marched through the wilderness, when, when your people went through the wilderness like that, God had a purpose. Why do you think he brought them from, from Egypt to there trapped at the Red Sea? Did he have a purpose? Did he just get them there and say, man, I made a bad military move here. Look, I've got them trapped. Boy, I hope I can get them out of this. God, God doesn't aimlessly do anything. There was a purpose behind it. So there's a purpose of what they were doing uh, in the wilderness. Now notice, he said, through the wilderness, he said, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain um, in the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. You remember what all the people had to do to get ready to go to Mount Sinai there to, uh, 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 for God to be there? You know, the thunder, the lightning, the shaking. You remember... Uh, uh, how they had to clean themselves, they had to prepare themselves, and, and they had to watch so they didn't get killed in his presence, didn't they? That's how powerful he was. Can you imagine what the scene was there? You know, can you imagine coming up and, and, and seeing that, uh, uh, seeing the cloud, the, hearing the thunder and, and, and the mountain shaking? I mean, it must have just been an awesome experience. But there, to me, when you, when you see scenes like that, and you see and you hear how David describes God and his power. Is there any room in there for a casual attitude toward God? I mean, think about that. Yeah, he's a loving God. He's a compassionate God. He's, he, he, he's there with us. But I can't have a casual attitude of who he is. When, when you say that name God, when you, you, you put that Jehovah, that Yahweh, that, that, that one and only, that self-existing being of, of, of that great, powerful person that, that protects us and guides us, i got to know that that means something. I, I can't take that lightly. You know, sometimes we, we talk about euphemisms, but when we think about how we diminish the name of God many times, uh, I think it's sad, isn't it? You know, we, we've got to realize we are, when we're in the presence of God, we better prepare ourselves, and we better be ready uh, for that. But he talks about, once again, how powerful he is, but then he goes right back to him providing for the needs, right? He says, O God, he sent a, pl uh, a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance. When it was weary, your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. Um. That what? What word? Salah? It's a pause. Uh, salah is a, a pause for reflection or meditation on what's being said. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like a, and Titus may be able to describe this a little better, or Bill, when it comes to, uh, in, 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 as far as in breaks and stanzas, and, but everything that I've seen on it, 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 it's, it it's like a pause to, almost for the effect of, of thinking about what you're saying or, or singing or praising. Is that right, Bill? Okay. But I would also say, like, as a consequence of this, again, when they read this song, yes, predominantly they would have been singing it. So yeah. imagine the fact that they're singing through that first line, God, when you march through the wilderness, and there's a pause. Nobody's singing for a second. Yeah. Just like in certain songs we sing, we have rest where if everybody's singing, then everybody stops for a second. That grabs the attention. You know, mm-hmm. What comes next? You know, yeah. God, when you march through the wilderness, but earth shook. You know, there, there's, yeah. there's Right. Still, as you're reliving that through the song, there's kind of like you're talking about that respect, that reverence of what happened, you know. And I think that Salah represents that. It's one of the, I think it's one of the most interesting ones because it's right in the middle of the pause. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, Bill, you had something else. No. Oh okay. Uh, did that help, Roy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes when we're reading, and I do, I, I leave that that out that it's just okay that's saying just to pause here for a minute but you know again you got to think about what david is saying especially when he's saying it here and as Titus is saying you know when you're describing how powerful god is and what he did in the wilderness it's almost like he's giving the people a moment to think about what they've heard about all the stories they heard of god in the wilderness of what uh, of what he did the power behind the things that he did and giving them time to, it, it kind of reminds me of a, a funeral director that I once knew. He would tell family, you know, a lot of times there's, you know, you put flowers on top of the vault lid, you know, before they, they lower it down. And, and he used to say to families, he said, okay, go up there, lay your flower down. He said, pause for effect as if to say goodbye. He'd say that every time. And I think about that and I thought, well, one, they are saying goodbye, so it's not for effect. But two, but what in his mind, what he was saying was, Okay, think about what you're doing. You know, think about what you're doing here. Think about saying goodbye. It just, sometimes it used to tickle me how he used to say it. But that's in essence what he was trying to say. Take, take time to think about this for just a minute. You know, don't just rush and do it. And, and I think about that every time I see this is, you know, maybe we need to think a little bit more about what we're reading. Think a little bit more about what we're singing uh, at times we're doing it. And I think that's what David is doing here. As, as he said, you got to think this whole, the whole congregation is singing this. And now they're stopping. And there's just as much power in what's not being said as there was of what's being said uh, when they think about uh, what they're doing here. Um, And he talks about them, but you think about them in the wilderness, how God, now they complained a lot. You know, God was giving them, first they complained they're hungry, gave manna, then they, you know, quail, and he, you know, here we got too much of it, I'm sick of it. You know, there's always something to complain about. But did God always give them what they needed when they needed it? It may not have been at the time they needed it. You know, there may be a time they thought they were, you know. There's a whole lot of times I thought I was going to die of thirst, but I don't think I ever got close to it. You know, a whole lot that I thought I was going to die of hunger, and I know I've never got close to that. So, you know, we may in our minds think that, but God, you know, you, you just think about what they took with them and how long they were there. God... 
God took care of their needs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the, when you think of the logistics of the Exodus, the, the massiveness of it, but God had it all took care of. He had it all planned out. He, you know, he, he wouldn't second guess along the way. He said, okay, I got you out here. Now what am I going to do with you? You know, he, he took care of them. As he's saying here, you, you give out your goodness. You, you know, you provide the rain plentiful. What you give, you give abundantly more you know, someone asked me last night, they were talking about uh, favorite verses, and, and as I've always said, my favorite one is Ephesians 3.20. You know, God is able to do for us far exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think according to the power that's in us. You know, we, we think about God providing their needs, but God goes far beyond that. You know, I've said that many times. God may not give me everything I want, but he gives me what I need. And sometimes what we mean by that, you know, we barely scrape by. You know, or we say, I want to go to heaven, but I hope I just get the, you know, you know, even if I just get the little shack down on the bottom of the hill, I don't have the mansion. That's all. I, it's not going to be like that. You know, God doesn't provide like that. God gives us far beyond what we can even imagine we need. He gives us things that we don't even know that we need. That's how wonderful he is. This isn't something, again, God's not just playing this by ear. God's not looking and saying, let's just see how this turns out. God knows how this is going to turn out. God knows how he's going to provide. God can put everything right where he needs it to be at the time that he needs it to be. And David is kind of collaborating all this together, kind of giving a history lesson here. And he's just basically saying, okay, if this is the time of Second Samuel here 6, where he's taking the ark into into Jerusalem here, David's basically saying, okay, let's go back from the beginning of it until now all that God's done. You know, because if you go to 2 Samuel 6, he's kind of defended himself a little bit for his actions of bringing it into the city, his dancing and, and, and carrying on. And he, he basically said, why shouldn't I do this? I'm going to do even more of this because this is the God that done all of this and continues to do all of this, I can't possibly praise him enough for everything that he's done. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's kind of giving a, a history lesson um, throughout this. Um, let's go to verse 11 through 14. <clears throat> the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. The she who remains at home uh, divides the spoils. Those who lie down among the sheepfold, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her fe uh, feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and Zalman. Uh, um, and there's a lot of discussion here about this. Uh, I, I read some commentaries that got all tore up because it talks about uh, certain things that women were doing and they go into Timothy where women don't have the authority and, and things of this nature. But, but notice what he's saying here. Uh, to me, it's, 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 I think sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees here. He says, great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. I like how he says this. Kings of armies flee. They flee. You know, he's saying uh, kings of armies, they do you realize what they do in the presence of God? Do you realize how powerful they are? 
They run. Matter of fact, he says again, they flee. They flee. Do you hear what I'm saying? They flee. David is, it's almost like he's so excited in, in telling this. Then he's talking about how, you know, when he come back, he thinks about, you know, you think about the, the praise that they're giving God, but there's battles that they had to go through to get to where they are now, right? And, and, and the spoils that come from that. And, and he's talking about, okay, as they, as they bring these spoils home, as, as, as basically I look at it as, 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 as when they bring them home, as, as their uh, wives here are helping divide them up. As they're, they're talking about they're enjoying the benefits of, of being on the side of victory with God. There, there's things to enjoy. There's benefits for that. There, there's spoils to be had. You know, it's an inheritance. It's, it's how wonderful it is to be on God's side and, and think about the benefits. And I think sometimes as Christians, we think it's horrible to think of what we get out of it. You know, sometimes I think we go too far on the wrong side. You know, what, what do I get out of church? What can I get out of this? But we, we can think as a Christian, what do I gain for this? The Bible even tells you count the cost, doesn't it? You know, he says, you count the cost to see, see what, if this is going to measure up to you. You look at what you think you're giving up, you look at what you're going to gain, and you ask yourself, is it worth it? And every single time, you should be able to say, yes, it is. It's absolutely worth it. He says, when the Almighty scatters kings in it, it was white as snow and Zaman. Now, I have no idea what he means by this. Everything I looked up, I still have no idea what he means by this. And I've not found anybody who has found what he means by this. Um, other than, um, I think he's, he's, he's talking about that uh, if, if you look over on, on, the king, on the hills, the mountains, and, and, and you see the snow peaks and you look down here and see these others, God covers it from here to there. You know, God is over all of this. When, when you talk about his power, there's nowhere you can look that he doesn't have that. And I'll kind of leave that uh, uh, right there, as it were. Um, again, I think David uh, is just describing the greatness of God. Uh, look, starting in verse 15. I think we've got a little bit more time. And we're not going to get done uh, with this tonight anyway. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now, he says a whole lot in, in these verses here. Uh, one, he starts with, I, I think, kind of a, an interesting one, talking about the mountain of Bashan, which all the mountains are gods that he says here. But you, you think about this great mountain then you think about where God chose at this time to be when it comes to Jerusalem there on Mount Zion. That didn't compare to what this other mountain was, but that's the one that God chose. And he's telling the other mountains, why are you envious of that? God chose that. And if you think about it, God has always done that, hadn't he? You know, it's, it's never what you expect. 
You know, when it comes to David himself, I think that's one reason David may have wrote this. When it comes to David himself, out of all of Jesse's sons, would you think David would be the one that he picked? You know, you think he'd go with a great warrior. That's what the people wanted. That's why they got Saul, this, this you know, big stature of a man. But look what they got. But the one that God picked wasn't who everybody else would pick. And that's what he's saying here about the mountains. He said, okay, the mountain over here is envious because God didn't pick them for this. He picked a smaller one, a more inconspicuous one over here. But that's the, that's the one that God can make great. And that's what he does for us. He, he makes us uh, great. And he talks about the greatness of God in comparison. And he, and he talks about the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, I, well, I say a lot of people, several commentators and scholars that disagree on this one too because he said you know god commanded his people they didn't have chariots and now it's saying that they have chariots thousands thousand. that's not what he's talking about he's talking about that god is to me he's talking about that's why god's people didn't need it they had god and he said god is greater than this okay who comes after him when a king brings his army in they're riding in the chariots they've got this great army god didn't need that god is bigger than that you bring the thousands of chariots on, God is greater than that. I think that's what uh, David here is making, uh, making reference to. Uh, now, in, in this, this part when he talks about, uh, let's see. It says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious. The Lord God might dwell in there. You know, Paul discussed this. Uh, Paul talked about this in Ephesians 4 when he was referring to Jesus. Uh, and what he's basically saying is that you bring captivity in captive. In other words, you think about what a normal king can come in and do. He can take a nation captive. God can go even farther than that. He can bring captivity into captive. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a play on words, but what, what I feel like David is saying, what Paul was referring to when he was, was uh, 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 phrasing this from from Psalm 68, is this is how great Jesus is. This is how great, this is what he's become. This is why he's here. This is how great he is. It's almost like he's so great you can't put it into words. You think of the greatest military leader, Jesus, is, God's more than that. You think of the most, uh, the greatest protector and defender and the most compassionate, God's greater than that. It's almost like his name. He's so great you can't put it into words. And I think that's what he's, he's going for here. Um, and then, uh, I think we can get just a few more. Uh, starting verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Salah. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God the Lord belongs, uh, belong escapes from, uh, the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on uh, in his trespasses, the Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from their enemies. He goes back to even Genesis 3.15 here, about uh, the prophecy of the Messiah of crushing the head. He says this is how great that victory is going to be when it comes to God. But we'll, we'll kind of start there the next time uh, we study this on Wednesday. <laughs>